Shalom, shalom, friends. It is great to see you. To start on a down note, before we go on a high note, you may have heard there was another act of uh, anti-Semitic vandalism down in Tucson. Um, they put a swastika on the shul door and the word kike. Um, it's very, very disturbing and upsetting to see this rise of, uh, rise of hate once again. And so uh, maybe you want to send a note down to the rabbi down there. Um, I'm going to try to send a note. And uh, we should always take these things very seriously, unfortunately, wherever we see it emerging from. But friends, today um, we are going to strengthen, uh, strengthen the world through some Torah learning, through some Torah learning, through Karl Marx versus Ayn Rand. Oh, yeah, I bet you didn't see this coming. Well, if you were here last week, you did. But here we go. Before we jump into that, let's do a little poll here. Let's see who's in the room and see what your deepest beliefs are on economics. How do you vote, view the role of government in economics? Number one, I am a socialist. Number two, I want major economic justice reform, but I'm not totally a socialist. I am a capitalist, but prefer something more compassionate than now. Or I'm a libertarian. I believe strongly in deregulation and in free market capitalism. Okay, friends, let's see your vote on that. Of course, that does not include all of the possible views on such complicated matters. But let's see where you fall out. Let's give you a few more seconds here. Let's see, remember it's always confidential. We never know how you vote. Um, but if we do, then we're gonna post it all over the blogs. Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> okay, let's see the results there. Okay, 13% socialists. 25% want major economic justice reform but are not socialists. 63% are capitalists, but prefer something more compassionate than now. And 0% here are libertarians, believe strongly in deregulation and free market capitalism. Okay, very interesting, very interesting friends. Here we go. One of the hot button topics in American politics today is taxation. And in particular, how it relates to the distribution of wealth. Income disparity continues to grow as the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. The gap is widening at a rapid rate. Far-right conservatives claim it is like robbery to tax the wealthy and redistribute wealth. The far-left claims that the wealthy should be taxed more than they are to a much higher degree. Of course, there are countless other positions along the spectrum. While analogs to these debates can be traced throughout Jewish history, in modernity, these two camps might best be located with Karl Marx, the founder of Marxism, and Ayn Rand, a fierce advocate for unregulated capitalism, whose works can be read as suggesting that selfishness is indeed a virtue. We're gonna hear a video from her in just 30 seconds. Ayn Rand, a Russian-American philosopher who was Jewish by birth, if not by affiliation, lived from 1905 to 1982, and is best known for her two best-selling novels, the Fountainhead, and Atlas Shrugged. She developed a branch of philosophy she called objectivism, in which she rejects religion 
and argues that reason is the only means of acquiring knowledge. She also rejects ethical egoism or altruism and any form of collectivism in favor of laissez-faire capitalism and individual rights. Furthermore, she rejects libertarianism, although her ideas are very closely aligned with that movement. Okay, we are now, oh, with a seamless transition from the great Pam Bueller, um, are now gonna listen to just two minutes of this speech in New York City from Ayn Rand. conflict, but it is not the conflict of capitalism versus communism. It is the conflict of capitalism versus itself with communism as the profiteer and the scavenger among the ruins who is advancing and winning by default. Capitalism is in the process of committing suicide. And if we want to stop that process, we must understand its reasons. No political economic system in history had proved its value so eloquently or had benefited mankind so greatly as capitalism and none has ever been attacked so savagely and blindly. Why did the majority of the intellectuals turn against capitalism from the start? Why did their victims, the American businessmen, bear their attacks in silence? The cause of it is a primordial evil which, to this day, men are afraid to challenge, the morality of altruism. Altruism has been man's ruling moral code through most of mankind's history. It has had many forms and variations, but its essence has always remained the same. Altruism holds that man has no right to exist for his own sake, that service to others is the only justification of his existence, and that self-sacrifice is his highest moral duty, virtue, and value. The conflict which since the Renaissance has been tearing Western civilization and which has reached its ultimate climax in our age is the conflict between capitalism and the altruist morality. Capitalism and altruism are philosophical opposites. They cannot coexist in the same man or in the same society. Okay, this, well, is, such a this is such a remarkable video to really, in just that two minutes, give you a sense of her, her view here. Here's what, here's how I hear a premise. She says, capitalism is not, cannot be framed as a war against communism. Why? Because communism is pure evil, she says. You wanna talk about the total down, downfall of everything good, it's called communism, right? And so we can't even debate communism. It's like not even, it's not even a conversation. The real battle for the soul of capitalism, she says, is versus altruism. Because altruism, she says, is a disease. It's a disease where people think the self has a dignity based on, on giving, based on other, uh, another's interests, based on self-sacrifice. She says, no, no, that the, the self has dignity based on self-interest. You need to build a society not on service to others, but based on harnessing self-interest. Altruism is an evil that seeks to undermine capitalism and capitalism is the source of all good in the world because when people operate from self-interest, it will ensure that everyone thrives based on the virtue of selfishness. Okay, that's her view. Okay. Now, Karl Marx was also born Jewish, but unlike Rand, was influenced by a very different culture in his homeland of Germany and lived a century before Rand from 1818 to 1883. Much of his political theory was developed in collaboration with another German thinker, Frederick Engels. Perhaps Marx's most famous work was the Communist Manifesto, if not Das Kapital, published in 1848. He believed that progress emerges through class conflict. The bourgeoisie, the ruling class, for example, was in conflict with the proletariat, the working class, through the production and distribution of goods. Based on his philosophy, of historical materialism, it was clear to him that such a class divide based on all of its inequality would inevitably self-destruct. Are we able to move to a Marx slide? On one hand, it is hard to compare Marx and Rand since Rand's political theories are most well-known among the far-right American political circles, although admittedly by some others as well, 
as the political valence of her, of her novels isn't always recognized. Marx, on the other hand, was one of the most influential thinkers and movement builders in modern history. And his ideas are invoked around the world still today. Marx was a philosopher and political theorist. Rand was primarily a novelist who, through her works, espoused political and philosophical views. Randian theory, though it is on the rise, Conservatives in government consistently present budgets with steep cuts to food stamps, SNAP, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, in contrast to huge tax cuts to the very wealthy and large corporations. These measures mirror and sometimes have their roots in the ideas of objectivist Ayn Rand, who worked, whose works can constantly exalted the individualistic millionaire while hurling invective at the poor and opposing any program to help them. Republican Paul Ryan, for example, has tried to, tried to distance himself from his accusations that he favors the objectivist philosophy of Ayn Rand, but he stresses his religious differences only. While Re Representative Ryan um, was, is a Catholic, Rand was, born, Rand was born Jewish and was an atheist, yet he repeatedly endorsed Rand's extreme views on pure capitalism, including an adversarial position toward the poor. While Marx and Rand would have disagreed on almost everything, there is perhaps one point they may have agreed on. It is, a, it is a point that also puts them at odds with so much of Jewish thought. They are both opposed to tzedakah, charity, as understood by so many Jews, i.e. giving poor money to the poor and to needy and organizations that help to elevate the marginalized. Marx would oppose tzedakah because it perpetuates the wealth disparity, masking the real problem of systemic inequality. Philanthropy covers over class divides, confusing the responsibility of the rich and the rights of the poor. Marx rejects, even despises humanitarian relief since it makes the greedy look virtuous, right? I can stay rich and donate 1% of my income and feel virtuous and, and, and gloss over the, the, the systemic inequalities. Rand opposes Sudaka as a virtue for the opposite reason. Individuals should not have to give up anything that's theirs. People may do so if they choose, I guess, but they need not. Here's a little taste of her perspective. This is from an interview in Playboy, Playboy, which I don't normally quote from, but for some reason Rand is quoted in Playboy. My views on charity are very simple. I do not consider it a major virtue. And above all, I do not consider it a moral duty. I, I, I've never heard of any philosopher say it's not a moral duty to, to, to have you know, um, financial obligation towards others. There is nothing wrong in helping other people if and when they are worthy of the help and you can afford to help them. I regard charity as a marginal issue. What I am fighting is the idea that charity is a moral duty and a primary virtue. Marx's and Rand's thinking is also similar in that they both espouse many inconsistent ideas. Marx articulates important critiques of capitalism, but also sees the world in black and whites. Either you are working toward revolution or you're perpetuating classism. For this reason, Marx rejects socialism as well. Yet consider how Rand wrote ceaselessly about the great evils of government, social services, and still chose to accept social security payments herself. She lived by the philosophy, excuse me, she claimed in the about author section at the end of her book, Atlas Shrugged, I have always lived by the philosophy I present in my books and it has worked for me as it works for many characters. Of course, friends, in the Torah's worldview, a just society is built on tzedakah both individual support and collective governmental support. The alternative to a society built on tzedakah is Sodom, is Sodom, Sodom. While both Marx and Rand present important perspectives worth, worth reflecting on, they also both, both overstate their cases. Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein famously argued that he believed Ayn Rand's thought was antithetical to the Torah and that one should not even read her books something I, I never heard him mention about any other uh, author. To be fair, he would have denounced Marxism as well, although his critique would have been perhaps less fierce. To Marx's credit, 
Okay. He seems to have had a distaste for a life built around making money. And he embraced the notion of progress that would lead to the redemption of humanity, a Hegelian dialectical form of secular messianism. There is something very noble about that, we might say, and this view can be located within Jewish ideals as well. But then Marx departed completely from Jewish values. He was through and through a materialist and believed that solving economic justice would solve virtually all problems. Like, think about that for a moment. Is it true that we, if we resolved economic justice issues, that problems would go away? Um, what problems would go away exactly? And what problems would be uh, exacerbated? Um, he even embraced violence to get there. He rejected peoplehood and nationhood as a way to deepen human solidarity and expand culture. And he viewed them as another tool of the wealthy to enslave the masses. Marx was also an anti-Semite. People say, oh, but he was born Jewish. What do you mean? He was a clear anti-Semite and even gave the argument that humanity needed to be emancipated from the Jews. He also argued that Jews must be checked and stopped in general, since they were so central to the birth of capitalism and guilty of poisoning all of civilization. One can easily make a Jewish case for socialism, but not for Marxism. Back to the question related to economic fairness as it plays out in American political debate today. What might fair taxation look like if one listened only to the avalanche of political ads during, for example, the 2012 election campaign? One might believe that Americans were being crushed under the heaviest federal tax burden ever and that raising taxes on the wealthy, the quote unquote job creators, was tantamount to national economic suicide. This view bolstered by much of the record four to six billion dollars raised for the presidential and, con and congressional campaigns was heavily supported by a small group of billionaires, perhaps topped by casino magnate Sheldon Adelson, who reportedly made contributions of a record $150 million himself. In total, billions of, billions of dollars were spent largely by, by people who claimed they were forced to pay too much in federal taxes. We can see this, you may have seen the news today that the 25 richest uh, people in America paid uh, uh, virtually no federal tax in, in the last year. We can see this trend during the 1979 to 2005 period, which was especially unique for its lower taxes on the wealthy. Congressional budget office data indicate that among Americans, the top 100th of 1% of the population had an income growth of 384% while their tax burden decreased by 11.4%. The median income increased by 12%, while the tax burden for the middle quintile decreased by only 4.4%. In addition, from 2000 to 2007, the top 0.1% of American earners saw a 94% increase in income compared with a 4% increase in income for the bottom 90% of earners. As former Secretary of Labor, Robert Reich, observed during uh, citing 2011 data, poverty, especially among the young, is on the rise. And there are deliberate efforts to create even greater in economic inequality. 21% of American school-age children lived in poor households, a 4% increase since 2007. Nearly one out of four children lived in a family that had difficulty obtaining sufficient food supply at some point during the year. In spite of this, about 60% of all cuts in the proposed 2011 Republican budget targeted child food, nutrition, and school programs, food stamps, and Medicaid. In the past, this trend toward lower taxes for the wealthy and greater inequality of wealth led to a pattern of booms and busts. The worst economic downturn occurred, occurred after one such period, culminating in the stock market crash in 1929 and ensuing a Great Depression. The, the second worst economic downturn came in 2007 at the end of George W. Bush's second term, also following a period of tax cuts for the rich and great economic inequality. During his presidency, the stock market lost about 25% of its value, and the NASDAQ lost nearly half its value. In contrast, President Bill Clinton, who raised income taxes for the highest earners, presided over a booming stock market with the Dow Jones average climbing about 7,000 points over his two terms.
Thus, we can infer from the above that raising taxes on the wealthy appears to aid economic growth, while cutting taxes for the rich only exacerbates income inequality and encourages reckless financial schemes that can lead to deep economic recession. Looking back to a decade ago, although we need not necessarily look back that far, there is stark evidence on how lowering taxes for the wealthy tends to increase economic inequality. In one three-month period in 2012, ExxonMobil's profits were $16 billion, the highest ever recorded by an American corporation. In spite of this, the oil industry receives an average of more than $15 billion of subsidies in the lease from, from the federal government. On the other hand, most Americans continue to struggle. For example, the greatest number of jobs created was in retail sales, where the average annual salary was less than $21,000, right? The average annual salary, less than $21,000 in retail sales. In addition, the number of those unemployed working part-time but trying in vain to get full-time work and those who gave up looking for work reached more than 23 million. In a callous gesture, the extended benefits period, the last 20 weeks of unemployment insurance was cut off in the summer of 2012 due to congressional failure to renew the program, throwing millions of people off unemployment benefits. If Congress would fail to act by the end of 2012, it was argued an additional 2 million Americans would lose their unemployment benefits. We saw that devastation. The 2012 presidential election campaign, again, I'm only going back nine years because of how much data is there, um, solidified, offered Americans the opportunity to choose whether the, the, to continue the Bush tax policy or return to the Clinton era policy of a slight increase on the tax rate of income above $250,000 earners. Republican president nominee Mitt Romney stated that he paid a 14% rate on his income tax in the one year for which he released his returns. However, his effective tax rate was around 10%, far less than the rate of most middle-class Americans. In November of that year, the American people voted to reelect President Barack Obama, thus voting in effect to raise the tax on the wealthy. As Americans, as Jews, and as activists for justice, we should consider consider continuing to press Congress to carry out the policies that move us towards more just taxation policy. The Jewish tradition has much to say about fairness and taxation and consistently endorses the principle that those who benefit the most from society have the greatest obligation to pay for the support of their community. For example, the Torah states, do not close your hand from your poor brother, open your hand to him and provide him with what he is lacking. That comes from Deuteronomy 15. In addition, the Torah instructs farmers to go over their fields and vineyards only once and not to reap the corner of their fields. Leave them the corner and that which was forgotten or dropped for the poor and the foreigner. That's from Leviticus 19. According to the Mishnah, the first part of the Talmud, the community was expected to support a communal kitchen, burial society, and other needed infrastructure. That comes from the Mishnah of Peah. Later, more defined funds presided over by prominent members of the community were set up to deal with for the poor. In order to achieve this, citizens were taxed in proportion to their ability to pay. Thus, Jewish law has consistently upheld the idea that progressive taxation is necessary for the maintenance of the community. However, I want to just acknowledge that's rabbinic law. In biblical law, we would call the, 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 the taxation system not progressive, but regressive. That is to say, everyone pay the same amount, right? Um, as opposed to a, the notion of higher percentages for higher earners. Um, yes, the rich will pay more, but they will pay the same percentage. They will pay the same per percentage. Um, okay, these, there are billionaires in America today who are not, stereoty who are not stereotypically greedy and selfish. Consider Warren Buffett's commitment to give away his billions and fortune. First, my pledge, he writes, more than 99% of my wealth will go to philanthropy during my lifetime or at death. Measured by dollars, this commitment is large. In a comparative sense, though many individuals give more to others every day, this pledge will leave my lifestyle untouched and that of my children as well. They have already received significant sums of their personal use and will receive more in the future. 
they live comfortable and productive lives. And I will continue to live in a manner that gives me everything I could possibly want in life. Were we to use more than 1% of my claim checks on ourselves, neither our happiness nor our well-being would be enhanced. In contrast, that remaining 99% can have a huge effect on the health and welfare of others. That reality sets an obvious course for me and my family. Keep all we can conceivably need and distribute the rest to society for its needs. Friends, one of the reasons I share this is because in far left circles, the rich are demonized in a way that Judaism departs from. Judaism does not demonize the rich. It demonized systems of inequality. We don't demonize billionaires or millionaires as being robbers or thieves, right, in some way. There is nothing wrong with working hard. There's nothing wrong with becoming rich. There's nothing wrong with living comfortably, right? The, the obligation becomes in creating systems of, that enable social mobility for people to, to, to rise. The, the obligations come in how people view their tzedakah and their philanthropy. But people like Warren Buffett and others, I mean, Bill Gates is not, you know, is kind of in the news these days where we can bracket some of the of what's emerging over there. But people like Gates, who, um, uh, you know, also, uh, you know, um, uh, has done work closely with Buffett. And in Buffett's humility, he said, I don't need a philanthropy in a, a foundation in my name. Put my money in Gates's foundation. He knows what he's doing. Right? He doesn't need his name on anything. He's a humble guy. Um, and so uh, and so I, I, I remind us here that the enemy that in, in the Marxist terms, the enemy is the rich, right? The rich are the enemy and the poor are the virtuous and the poor have to violently overcome them, right? And Judaism doesn't see it in such a basic dichotomy of, of such a warfare um, that the billionaires can be deep partners with the working class. And that, that's, that's by and large a, a more Jewish framework as well. As another example, even in recently announcing their divorce, as I mentioned, Bill and Melinda Gates are committed to the work of their charitable foundation. And the Gates have been asking hundreds of the wealthiest Americans, billionaires or those who would, would be if not for their charitable donations, to be part of the giving pledge, a commitment to give a minimum of half of their wealth to philanthropy, either during their lifetime or at death. As of early 2014, more than 120 wealth individuals and couples have accepted that pledge. And now the list has expanded overseas to include some of the wealthiest people in the world. To facilitate the process, members gather annually to discuss their ongoing activities and learn ways to use their fortunes for good. The hope is that the Giving Pledge will provide crucial funds for education, the arts, scientific research, and other areas of concern for the betterment of society. This movement has historical antecedents. One such example was Andrew Carnegie, who lived from 1835 to 1919, the steel magnate who was perhaps the most modern mega philanthropist. Even before he retired in 1900, he had written that any wealth that a person has beyond one's needs should be viewed as a fund to be expended for the good of the community. Carnegie put his fortune behind his idea and contributed about $350 million. Its current value would be well into the billions to charitable causes before his death. He was especially fond of libraries that would enable people to read books and acquire knowledge free of charge. Carnegie and his posthumous corporation created more than 2,500 libraries. And many generations of students owe much of the quality of their ed education to Carnegie and his spirit of philanthropy. While some of the world's wealthiest people engage in philanthropic efforts for the benefit of others, it should be acknowledged that it is not always easy to give up some of one's wealth, right? As we see from the Talmudic passage I'm about to share, family dynamics have often been, have often made it challenging for philanthropists to actualize their giving. Consider this Talmudic story about King Moonbaz. I love this story if you've never heard it before from the Talmud. A story concerning King Moonbaz. King Moonbaz decided to give away all the wealth of his kingdom his brother sent him a message. Oh, your father sent much, spent so much time acquiring wealth and expending the treasury, which they had inherited from their predecessors. What gives you the right to spend it all? Moonbaz replied, I am stockpiling wealth in heaven, while my predecessors only stockpiled wealth on this earth. I am stockpiling wealth where no one can access it, while my predecessors stockpiled wealth where anyone can take it away. My predecessors stockpiled treasures of money while I am stockpiling treasures of souls. 
I am stockpiling wealth for myself and for the next world while my predecessors stockpiled wealth for others and in this world. So here we see in the Talmud, this idea of family conflict around money, which is one of the most common forms of conflict in families, especially around inheritance, inheritance and death. Um, but then also the issue of, of how do you even have a right? My father to give money away, you should be giving this to me. Or my brother, this is our parents' hard worked money. And he says, no, from a, a spiritual perspective, I'm investing in my, the 401k of my soul, not the, one for, not the 401k of, of my fidelity account. Many things come easily for the rich and we should expect those who are so greatly blessed and privileged to give back to the community that enabled their success. With so much suffering, poverty, and sickness in the world that could be alleviated with just a fraction of the massive wealth that such a few enjoy, it is the ethical responsibility of the wealthy to aid the less fortunate, not to mention to uphold the Jewish community which struggles to sustain. However, there are challenges to philanthropy that should be recognized and considered. Still, each person has a great amount to give back to society, both the rich and the poor and everyone in between, regardless of their financial resources. We can give our time to social betterment organizations, give our old clothes to homeless shelters, donate blood to help the sick, or be a friend to the lonely. To name just a few things we can do, it's not all about the money. Almost all of us can push ourselves a bit further to give more, and we will only gain in the process to the contrary of Rand's philosophy. The Shemitah year, the sabbatical year, is one of the countless Torah-based vehicles that demonstrates a Jewish commitment to economic justice. Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Kalisher, a name you've probably never heard, who lived 1795 to 1874, writes, the wealthy person will learn not to look down upon the poor person. For the Torah said that in the seventh year, everyone is equal. Both the rich and the poor have permission to enter gardens and fields to eat. Rabbi, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, the founder of the, of the, of the Breslov movement, saw the deep desire for money as one of the hardest desires to overcome, right? More powerful than the drive for sex, more powerful than the drive for immortality, more powerful than the drive of the ego, Rabbi Nachman thinks, is the drive for money. He saw the emergence of capitalism as a dangerous force that could lead to violence and even idolatry. He writes, he would explain that the only, uh, his student writes, he would explain that the only true goal was to serve God all the days of one's life, spending one's time praying and singing praise. He said that wealth is not the goal of life at all. The only goal is the creator. May his name be blessed. Rebbe Nachman went so far as to state that one should almost be ashamed of their wealth. Here he writes, money is the great shame. If someone wants to insult another, he says that the other has money. Money is so great a shame that the more money a person has, the greater his shame. Now, it was revealed that wealth is the main thing of which to be ashamed. Now, let me remind us, this is not the mainstream view. The mainstream view is that Jews should not be ashamed of wealth or money. But Rebbe Nachman was a radical spiritualist who said we should spend our time serving God and doing good in the world. And if somebody spent most of their time trying to accumulate wealth, they should be ashamed because that wealth represents how they spent their time. Friends, to conclude here, Jewish texts can be cherry-picked to argue for capitalism or socialism, of course. But the deeper truth is that Jewish thinkers have for millennia held very different views about economic justice based on their own ideologies, locations, and eras. What is clear from all the Jewish sources, however, is that selfishness is not a virtue. You probably didn't even need me to, to state that, but just to, to state it again, selfishness is not a virtue. Each of us is responsible to take care of one another. On the other hand, dependence upon others is not a value either. And each person must therefore take personal responsibility, not only for the other, but all the more so for oneself. The Republicans have it right that the poor should not live based on handouts. They should live on working hard. The Democrats have it right that some people can work hard and still not make it. And people need support. Marx and Rand evoke such powerful emotions among ideologues today. We can understand why this would be true for Jews as well, since they both were Jews and represent extremes as they represent the Jewish people. 
in our day, may we expand our learning, our generosity, and Jewish wisdom toward justice. Okay, my friends, let me see your beautiful faces. Oh, okay, wonderful. Okay, Lauren Blatt, you're up first. Um, first of all, I hope you all don't hate me. I hope you don't hate me if you're a Marxist or a Randist. And you go, oh, this mm -hmm. radical Shmuley, he just broke down my camp. <laughs> okay. I believe in the middle of the road. <laughs> okay, good. let's hear from you. Um, in, in some ways, I've often thought about it. Unfettered capitalism is worse than feudalism if you were lucky enough to have at least a feudal lord with a sense of noblesse oblige. I mean, I don't think there's anything crueler than unfettered capitalism. And what I don't understand is why Americans aren't up in arms in how little they have, how little they get from their government and um, how little the rich are taxed. I mean, look to the North, we're not perfect, but then look to democratic socialist countries or social Democrats like, like Sweden and Norway and Finland and Denmark where you know you have free education, where you have healthcare in Canada too. We don't have to worry about being sick. Um, it, it just I don't get it. I don't know why Americans aren't completely outraged at their lot in life. And if and and I just want to say also the only true socialism that ever existed is an Israeli kibbutz. And some of them are still functioning and functioning beautifully as socialistic people team. Great, great. That's it. Okay, now it's interesting. Thank you for that. Now it's interesting to note, again, I'm just entertaining all the ideas here. I'm not arguing for any one approaches, but um, that America, like every nation, has always had a war against someone or something. Right? Of course, sometimes it was obvious, right? The war against the Brits, the war of independence, right? You talk about the Civil War and what was at stake in the Civil War. And then you fast forward to the middle of the 20th century and the rise of Nazism, the rise of fascism. And then you fast forward to the rise of communism and the Cold War. And America's at war with the Cold War. And then as part and parcel there is that capitalism is at war with communism, right? As a political system, as an economic system, as a geopolitical uh, 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 issue. And so everything, so capitalism gets heavily bolstered as the virtuous and anything that is now government run um, as a po um, is now to be suspect, um, is now to be suspect as being a part of the side of evil. Of course, after that, we see democracy comes the great good. We need to go to a war against all that are not democratic, even go bomb them. Um, even if they don't have systems in place in their in their country to support uh, democratic systems, and then the the war becomes uh, 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 um, the the jihadist Islamists, and then we fast forward a little bit more, and we might ask ourselves in the 21st century what that war becomes. And I think America's really struggling with the, like that that right now. Few Americans are going to say the wars against communism, although they might accuse you know leftist politicians of being communists. Um, few are going to say the war is, is the anti-democratic regions. Um, few are going to say that the jihadists are truly who, what the, who the war is against today. Um, and so there is kind of this struggle in America to have a, a unified war. And that is why, partially, why America is so divided today. America is not so only so divided because of the issues we point to of, of division, issues like Israel, economic views, you know, Trump and Democrats, um, you know, fill in the, in the blank around polarization, around race. Um, it, part of it is we don't have a unified war. We, America doesn't know what we're at war against right now. And because of that, um, because of that, America sees more, more division. And so the last thing to say there, Lauren, I think that people who have more or less done well in America understand through American superiority that that is because of unregulated capitalism. Those socialist countries that are not as successful are so because corporations were, were regulated in their ability to grow. And if, and, and if they're regulated, they're grow, everyone is regulated. Now, people who are at the bottom, of course, have a different narrative. But that is by and large why the system doesn't change. It's not only the richest, but, but even the middle class 
who look around at the world and say, and rightly, and in, in many ways rightly say, I have it better than almost everyone around the world. And why would I want to change that? And so they might say, okay, a minor tweak, okay. Um, but they say, really, you know, healthcare, you know, how many people don't have it? 30 million. Okay, but over 270 million do have it. And they say, you know, how, the homeless, how many homeless are there really? Most people do have homes. And so it's an interesting question that, you, that you're asking here. And I think if you ask people to check the box, the high, high majority, even of people where the system was not working for them, would still believe, rightly or wrongly, we can debate that, that, that an unfettered, unregulated capitalist system is going to be the best for all. Okay, Michael. I think the question of wealth distribution and taxation, I think that's the wrong focus. Those are tools. The tools for what? And I think we have to look at is what are our long-term goals? I think we want social stability. We want economic ability. We want, and how do you do that? You do that by having uh, people having the perception they can improve themselves with hard work. You do it with way tools that, that, that work towards this feeling of societal. And when you have, when you have the, what we're going through now with the, with the bimodal wealth distribution, I think it works against that. So, and, and also the question of capitalism versus socialism, again, is kind of a straw dog. It's an artificial one. There's no such thing as a capital. It's all a blended how you put it together. For example, we have a country that, that has a lot of socialist things. I always love, you know, the people who are against socialism who swear by their social security. They swear by the Medicare, you know, and, and things like this. So I think as a society, as much as possible, we need to develop a, a, a vision of where we want to go. And, and again, I think economic and social and cultural stability is underpinning in that. Then we can look, what sort of tax policies, what sort of wealth distribution, what sort of blend between capitalism, socialism, whatever term that you want to do, provide us this, that it be stable and is sustainable for our kids, our grandkids and beyond. Amazing, amazing, thank you. Thank, thanks so much for that. I think that's a really helpful point, um, uh, you know, um, around uh, rem rem remembering that these ideologies are blended, right? These ideologies are not, so, they're, they're used that way in political, by political demagogues. I'm a capitalist, they're really a socialist, right? Uh, I'm a real socialist who's compassionate there, right? But actually these are very blended. Yes, please. But Americans, I think for a long time, mo many have had an illusion because we know from the, the data, it's not particularly true, but I think Americans have this illusion that we are a country in which it's um, the most possible for people to rise economically, you know, if you're disadvantaged, if you're poor to make it. And I think it's partially that illusion. And we know from recent data that's been coming out and comparing America to other countries that it's not true anymore. It might, if it was true in the 1880s to 1920, which is not as completely clear, it's not true anymore that that, that is, a thing that distinguishes American society from many other societies, but Americans have that illusion very strongly. And so I think yeah. that plays into um, the political debates. Thank you, thank you so much for that. And it's true, Jenny, and, it, and I think that if someone grew up in, in a home of means and they had the chance to experiment in college, experiment with careers, had a safety net to kind of get there, it's very hard to understand a narrative where one grows up in poverty you know, um, and doesn't have that safety net, doesn't have the support, doesn't have the ability to fail, has to basically, if they even go to college, work their whole way through it, um, doesn't have that social mobility to climb, not to mention other potential racial barriers or gender barriers or the like. Let me share one other thing before we move to the next person, which I think I first heard from Eunice. And this, this is only one snapshot into your own economic philosophy, but here's what he said. If you're in a village and you find a flute, and there's an argument about who should get the flute. Three arguments are made. One child comes forward and they say, I am the best in the village at playing the flute. If I get the flute, I can make the most happiness for the village by playing the flute the best. The second child comes forth and says, I should get the flute because I made the flute. I made it. 
The third comes and says, I should get the flute because I'm the only one who will never have a chance of affording a, to a, being able to buy a flute. Who should get the flute? Is it based on the virtue model of who is the best player? Is it based on the pro private property model of who made the flute? Or is it based on, um, uh, is it based on the welfare model of who will never be able to access one? Uh, it's a difficult if you had to choose one of the three. Okay, let's move to the next comment or question here. Yes, Eileen. Having um, met Miss Annual and Barbara Brandon in the early 60s, and having had an English professor who fell madly in love with Ayn Rand, I can only say that over the intervening 60 years, a lot of that perceived affection is gone. Um, my opinion is that Ayn Rand hated herself. She was a dumpy, short Russian Jewish woman who no matter what she wrote or what she thought could never divorce herself from that. Um, Nathaniel Brandon was also Jewish. She made him change his name. Nathaniel Brandon's wife, Barbara was Jewish and they did everything they could to hide it. Um, and the reason I'm mentioning this, some of you probably know, some of you do not. Ayn Rand had a tumultuous sexual affair with Nathaniel Brandon, who was 25 years younger than her. Yeah, I mean, this was, this was kind of interesting. At any rate, having had to have read Atlas Shrugged, all 999 pages, of which I skipped the philosophy because it sucked, um, her writing was turgid. I mean... Tell us really, how you really feel, Eileen. Tell us how you really feel. You know, if you look at it objectively, she was not a great writer. Uh, her characters are one dimensional and they are Aryan. They are blonde, blue eyed, tall, skinny, everything she was not. So I'm not a big fan of hers. And I, I think objectivism is a philosophy that was um, philosophy du jour. And the du jour has gone. Okay, very interesting. So, you know, it, uh, well, I don't know if it's gone because I actually want to suggest that, um, that she won. In many ways, she won. The American culture, look, I spend my time trying to say more uplifting, positive, inspiring things than polemics. But uh, as a real polemic in America, I, I think she won. I think that the, the zeitgeist in American culture is such that selfishness is a virtue. Few would articulate it that way, but I think there is a sense that the measure of a good life is um, get, being wealthy and having people do everything I need for me, more or less, right? And, um, and, and, and sharing is only worth it if I am going to get some kind of ego boost or some networking opportunity or something out of it. I think the sense that 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 the poor are responsible for their own plight, and uh, yeah, go ahead, Eileen. By whose standard are we judging? Well, I think by um, I, I I think by the masses uh, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, viewpoints and ideologies. The fact that most Americans donate one percent, one to two percent of their income. Um, the way that um, the, the capacity for empathy is dropping. Uh, empirical, empirical studies show basically that the self has become the center. Self-interest is the idolatry of our age, right? One's lifestyle is built around the self and one's fulfillment. Yes. America has always been built on the self. We are a land of guns and we are a land of fast action. And if you go back in our history, even though we had some thinkers, the majority of our heroes were action men. Okay, thank you. Eric, I see your hand has been up. Thank you, Eileen. 
Uh, thank you very much. This was a very fascinating uh, approach. I think that not only you, but some of the other participants gave a great examples of uh, its approach in, in, in different cultures. You gave great example about it, not only that there was, they rejected aspects of Torah, but also where even you took a step further where uh, an example where there were leaders who rejected, uh, rejected their, their, their approach and ideology. What I like to ask you is a kind of a two-part question. I'll make it very quick. Uh, one, have you, seen, have you seen schools of thought in, in different aspects of Judaism that have started to take on, maybe the, in the last generation or so, that have started to reevaluate, to look on any of Marx or Rand's kind of like economic um, or philosophical approaches that, and I say with parentheses, that do not contradict, you know, you know, Jewish law. And two, have you seen any Jewish leaders uh, of um, within the any kind of the Jewish community who are taking the mantle to be advocates uh, of either school of either of those um, of, of the, the people of Rand or Marx? Oh, what a fascinating question! And it's actually beyond me. Um, it would require a little bit more research, but just to reflect a little bit on that, that great question, Eric, I think, you know, it's interesting that, um, a reminder, the, the, the Jewish law of 10% donation says also maximum 20%, maximum 20%. And that plays out in America, whereas in Israel, which started off socialist um, and evolved to capitalists, ultimately with the collapse of the kibbutz system, and um, especially with the last 12 years of, of Netanyahu, uh, where it was kind of it was kind of more solidified um, in Israel. There's a, an enormous amount of fascinating uh, thought that has emerged over the past few decades, where they are wrestling with um, Jewish autonomy, Jewish self determination, and constructing a Jewish economy around responsibility and um, and and reinventing these biblical and rabbinic mandates in a modern economy in a way that American Jews haven't been a part of. Um, even though you look at who's kind of been on the, on the economic teams in the White House. It's very fr frequently Jews like Jack, Jack Lou or Larry Summers or, you know, fill in the blank. Actually, what's her name now? Who's the head of the treasury? Uh, someone remind me. Janet Yellen. Janet Yellen, is that her name? Yes. Yeah, Janet Yellen. So, you know, I mean, so, I mean, Jew, I mean, I mean, you know, people say the anti-Semitic tropes of Jews and money, but the fact is Jews do think a lot about money and are, have a lot of expertise in, 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 in economics, um, even though that can be used you know, anti-Semitically. In any case, in those two camps, I think there is a far-left Jewish camp that has been emerging, that is moving more towards a Marxist identity, as and thinking about class warfare, um, and even moving away from a Martin Luther King, Gandhi ideology of of nonviolence towards a notion that violent resistance towards economic injustice should be revived. Thankfully, it's a, still a fringe movement but I have seen this emerging. And most definitely we see among um, Orthodox populations and even non-Orthodox populations, Jewish libertarian populations, which are really making Ray, Ayn Rand a rabbi. She's the rabbi, I mean, she's really the sage of our time who is kind of speaking the true Torah, right? Um, and you know, what's, what's, amazing, what's amazing about that, and one of the main reasons it's antithetical is that the word for responsibility in Hebrew, what's the word? Achrayut, achrayut. What is the root of achrayut? Acher, acher, the other. Responsibility emerges, is rooted in otherness. Her ideology emerges in selfhood. Now, selfhood is a product of modernity. The notion of the self, for better and worse, is invented in modernity. Um, and that's where Marx is emerging from, and most certainly where Rand, Rand is emerging from. Um, and so, yeah, and so who would I point to who's kind of holding up that mantle? There's a number of figures I, I, I would point to, but I, 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 I want to look at it a little more closely before I, I respond to that. Um, but I do think that by and large, um, uh, again, while we could find some of their ideas that resonate, I think the ones that don't resonate mostly is their demonizing of Sadaka. Um, you know, her selfishness of, as a virtue, his idea of violent messianism, um, and they both exist in binaries, 
right? In Jewish thought, you can enjoy your wealth and your the fruits of your labor and be a giving person, right? And for Marx and, and, and Rand, you can't. You, you shouldn't be involved in this altruism for Rand, right? And for Marx, um, you shouldn't either because you're just hiding your, 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 your greed ultimately. Um, oh yeah, Thatcher. Th oh, there's a lot to say about Thatcher. I won't even go there. So anyways, okay, let me pause there. Let's, let's take one more comment or question. We didn't hear yet from Matthew or Yehuda or Steve. Let's see if any of them want to weigh in. Yeah, this is Matthew. Good. Just one comment is for all the right-wing views of let's not help anyone in society, what the old line was, what I what you have is a tax break, what I have is a justifiable incentive to the economic system. And people protect what they have. And that's what a great deal of the debate is now is should the oil companies still get a depletion allowance? Should people be able to deduct the mortgages on their home, which inflates home prices? And the question society has to reach is where do you want to have incentives? A Republican theory is don't let the government decide, let free market decide. But yet the government does decide when it built the interstate highways for defense, it opened up the suburbs. Now, where do you allocate resources? New York City colleges used to be free. It was a great way for people to get out of poverty. During the period when New York City almost went broke, they started charging tuition. Maybe you go back to having free colleges in Arizona instead of raising tuition eight or nine times what it was 20 years ago. So society has to decide where you level the playing field. It's my only comment. Thank you. Um, Steve, And you, I, I'm, I'm going to share one closing text, but first I want to see if, if Steve, you want to share? Thank you, Matthew. Uh, I can't see. I can't tell if Steve is declining or if his uh, unmute is not working. I think he's trying to unmute. Okay, not working. Okay, Yehuda, do you want to share anything? Um, yeah, this is just fascinating. You know, growing up in a home that was uh, pretty far right and stuff, and you know, I I just think that uh, they have they have prevailed I agree with you and and I think it's really skewed that way I think Ayn Rand is just profoundly immoral and I think that in our in 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 our discussion is about she, she's cheering you on go you Eileen is like having a, having a ball over there <laughs> and I think that you know our discussion of economics and inequality and everything it's just business. We, we separate morality, we separate spirituality from business and our discussions in those things. And it reflects this society that we're immersed in advertising and entertainment and all this secular stuff surrounding us that, you know, separates people from God. So, and I think that part of what we're looking at with this whole question of economics and inequality is, is the, I don't think you can tax the rich and, and, and create lasting change. If they are always gonna have in their head that you are taking their money unjustly, we're not gonna get where we need to go. Thank you, Huda. thank you for weighing in. Okay, um, so friends, um, here's the last source I'm gonna close on from Pierre Kavo. Arba midot beadam. There are four types of people. Haomer sheli sheliva shelcha shelach. One is this mine is mine and yours is yours. Okay, this is a this is a benonit. This is this is a, a common person. Your, my stuff is mine. Your stuff is yours. Okay, fair enough. Biyeshem rimzo midat stone. And some say this is a sodomite, right? This is a sodomite. The 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 most the quintessential wicked person is the one who says mine is mine and yours is yours. Right? Then there's the one who says, mine is yours and yours is mine. Okay, this is just an unlearned person because they, they say, this makes no sense. My stuff is yours and yours is mine? Like, what, is it, what are you talking about? 
one that says mine is yours and yours is yours, that's pious person. You're welcome to my house. Like my, mine is yours and yours is yours. That's pious. And lastly, mine is mine and yours is mine is a wicked person. Right? My stuff is mine and yours is mine. That, that, that's, you know, we see that as a prevailing idea today. But again, the one that says mine is mine and yours is yours is a, is a me that stone. And so here we have to kind of challenge ourselves with how we think we think about such uh, such matters in such a competitive landscape where we feel we have to get ahead and secure ourselves. Yes, we have the right to do that. And yet we are challenged by our tradition to ask, what is the moral legacy I wish to leave behind on how I use my time and my energy and my resources for others? Yes, there's a dignity to the self just for the self. And yet there's another dignity of the self that is about is illuminated through how we uplift others as well, through our various means. I give us all the bracha, whether you're a communist, a Marxist, a socialist, a capitalist, a libertarian, a Randian, uh, whatever you are, a shmuliist, an anti-shmuliist. Uh, uh, and for me, I'm just a Steve Show. I'm just a Steve Chauvinist, right? But whatever we are here, friends, um, let's just uh, let's keep growing and learning together and 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 putting good and light into the world. But according to Eileen, just don't be a Randian. Don't be a Thank you very much. God bless. God bless. Thank you. God bless. Thank you.